Let me welcome you to week number three of this uh, current series where we are thinking together about that very challenge, that very uh, thing that we need to get a grip. And specifically, as you know, in these weeks we're thinking about getting a grip on our money or getting a grip on finances. Let me remind you of what we've learned over the last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, in week number one, we thought about getting a grip on gratitude. And so we were learning how to trust our Heavenly Father for all of our needs and to live in this life without anxiety and fear, but rather investing our time, energy, resources, our lives into eternity and then trusting Him to meet our needs all along the way. And as we do that, we uh, can uh, live a life of gratitude. Remember last week I said to you that when we do that, anxiety and fear diminishes and gratitude rises. That was week number one, getting a grip on gratitude. That was Matthew chapter number six. Last week we were in 2 Corinthians chapters eight and nine, and we were learning to get a grip on generosity, learning to get a grip on being generous. Here's what we discovered that generous giving is God's plan. It is his plan for funding his work in the world. He calls his people to be like he is, that is to be generous. Do you remember what we learned last week? We're all born stingy. Every person is born stingy. We ought to be born again generous because when we don't know the Lord, we are the sons of the enemy, literally the children of wrath, and Satan is stingy, a thief, the Bible says. He's a taker, but our heavenly Father, when we come to faith in Christ, is generous, and he's a giver. So we ought to be born again generous. So last week we were talking about generosity. Now, by the way, can I just stop and say thank you uh, seriously, thank you for your encouragement to me this past week. I, I, I received maybe more notes of encouragement, texts and emails this past week than I typically uh, would receive, and it was a message about giving. You are so easy to preach to about giving because you love the Word of God and you understand the principles of generosity. Let me remind you of the principle that we was kind of the fundamental thing that we uh, embraced last week. And if you didn't get it last week written down somewhere, I hope you'll write it down today. But never forget it. It's to say that generosity is a choice that we all make. Generosity is a choice that we all make. I asked you last week, how are you doing with generosity? Is it your plan? Is it the plan for your life? I said, if it is, it is only so because you have chosen that it would be so. Now, let me say to you that some of you might say to that question, have you made the choice of generosity? Some of you might say, well, that's not a choice I can make. I, I can't really be generous. You, you might say, I can't give. It's just not something that I am able to do. I can't give. Or you might say, I don't have any money that I could give into God's work. No point in me choosing generosity. There's nothing there to be generous with. That might be what you would say. But if that's your thinking, let me remind you of a beautiful text in Mark chapter number 12. It's in verse number 42 where Jesus talked about a widow who came to the tabernacle. It said a poor widow came in and she put in, into the temple collection two small copper coins which make a penny. This little widow came and she gave what we call the widow's might. Remember that? The widow's might. Just really a penny. 
And she was giving that penny amongst all of the wealthy people who were casting in great sums of money. And Jesus said that what that woman gave was a greater gift than what those who gave great sums of money were giving because he said she gave all that she had. See, generosity, being generous is not about how much I'm able to give relative to how much somebody else gives. If it's a lot or a little, it is my willingness to surrender myself to the Lord and to choose to be generous. This was Paul's point about the the, uh, poor Macedonian Christians in 2 Corinthians chapter number 8 when he, he said everyone can give something, even those who had very little we're able to give something. So if you say, I can't choose generosity, that's not something I can do. I don't have any money to give. Now, I would challenge that statement. It says, probably not a true statement. Here would be a truer statement. It would be more true to say, I can't give as much as other people give. Or maybe you would even say, I can't give as much as I wish. I could give. And that statement might very well be true of many of us. And so what I want to talk to you about today is the issue of how we can become better stewards in order to become ultimately more generous. Write this principle down. This this is an absolutely true fundamental fact of life. It is my capacity for generosity. Jot it down somewhere. My capacity for generosity is in direct proportion to my diligence in stewardship. I'm going to say it again. My capacity for generosity is in direct proportion to my diligence in stewardship. In other words, the way in which I steward what God has entrusted to me determines the level at which I am able to be generous, more or less based on my stewardship. Now, some of you are saying, but wait a minute, aren't those the same thing? Aren't generosity and stewardship the same thing? Is, that, aren't, aren't those two things the same? They're not. In fact, they're not the same at all. Here's the difference. Generosity is a choice that I make. I just choose to be generous because God is generous But stewardship is a discipline that I learn. Can I say that to you again? I choose to be generous. Anybody can make that choice. But stewardship is a discipline that I need to learn and make it a practice and a part of my life. And so today I want to help us all with that. I want us to look to Luke chapter number 16. We're going to talk about getting a grip on stewardship, all right? Getting a grip on stewardship. You follow along as I read chapter number 16 and verse number one. And he said unto his disciples, Jesus is speaking, he said unto his disciples, there was a certain rich man which had a steward. And the same, that steward was accused unto him, unto the rich man, that he had been wasting or squandering his goods. And so he called him in, and he said unto him, How is it that I'm hearing this of you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you may no longer be my steward. Now, somewhere out in the margin of your Bible, you might write the word fired. 
(laughs) You're fired. Give an accounting of your stewardship, for you may no longer be my steward. Then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? For my Lord is taking away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig, and to beg, I'm ashamed. I am resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. And so he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him. And he said unto the first, how much do you owe my Lord? And he said, I owe him a hundred measures of oil. And so the steward said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Pay it off for 50 measures. He said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, I owe a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, sit down and take your bill and write 80. And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. Now stop right there for just a second. If you have a pen in your hand somewhere right after the word wisely, draw a vertical line. Just divide the verse right in half in the middle of verse number eight. Here's why. Because in the middle of verse eight, the parable ends, that's the end of the parable, and the application of the parable begins in the middle part of verse number eight. So the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. That's the end of the parable. Now Jesus begins to teach. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, so that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting Habitations. We're going to talk about this verse in some detail in just a minute. Let me read it again. Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. Here's a translation. Use worldly wealth to gain eternal friendships. That's what he's saying. Use worldly wealth to gain eternal friendships. So that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful in much. And he that is unjust or unfaithful in that which is the least will be unjust also in much. If therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You've heard that statement before, right? Remember from two weeks ago? This is the exact same thing Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Exact same phrase. You can't serve two masters. You'll love one, hate the other. You cannot serve God in money. You cannot serve God in wealth. It's also recorded in Luke chapter 6. In another sermon that Jesus preached called the Sermon on the Plain, And it's also recorded here. This is an axiom. It's an idiom that that Jesus uh, used uh, at least three times. You cannot serve God and money. Now, verse 14, and the Pharisees who were covetous, when they heard these things, they derided Jesus or they mocked Jesus. I want you to uh, take your pen and circle in verse number one of Luke 16 the word steward. Steward. There was a certain rich man which had a steward. And then in verse number two, circle the word stewardship. 
it's almost the exact same word, stewardship. So a steward who has a stewardship. And then down in verse number eight, just one more circle. Circle uh, the two words unjust. The unjust steward. This parable that we're looking at this morning is called that, the parable of the unjust steward. And in fact, this parable is widely considered to be the most difficult of all of Jesus' parables. And again, there are about 40 of them. This is considered to be the most difficult of all of his parables to interpret. And one of the reasons is because on the surface, the parable of the unjust steward seems to commend and celebrate dishonesty and stealing. And of course it doesn't. And as we consider what Jesus is teaching here, it will become clear that it's not a celebration of this unjust steward. Let's learn together about stewardship by learning from this unjust steward. Let's begin with a definition. You know that I love definitions. And so somewhere, I want you to jot down the definition of a steward. What is a steward or what is stewardship. Here it is. A steward is the manager or the administrator. A steward is the manager or the administrator of someone else's property, money, or possessions. A steward is the manager or the administrator of someone else's property, money, or possessions. Now the Bible says if you are a Christian, you are God's steward. You have been given a stewardship. And so as the stewards of the Lord, we have been given the the position of managers or administrators of, of all things that belong to God. Here is the, the ethos or the ethic of stewardship. It goes like this. God is the owner I'm the manager. Can you say those two things with me? If you've been at Brookstone very long, you've said it before because I've taught you this for years, so it's not new to you. Say it out loud with me. God is the owner. I am the... One more time, both campuses. I can't hear you at Merriman or online. Say it. God is the... I am the... That's it. That's the steward's ethic. God is the owner. I am the manager. Now, let me ask you a question. What is it exactly that God owns? (laughs) Well, in a word, everything. He owns everything. Did you know that God is the owner of all of creation? Listen to what the Bible says in 2 Chronicles 29 and verse 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all, everybody say the word all, all, everything that is in heaven and in the earth is yours. He owns it. Now he owns it by right of creation. He made it, therefore it belongs to him. He owns all of creation. If we're going to talk about God owning all of creation, then we also need to acknowledge that we are created in the image of God. So did you know that God not only owns the the spinning ball of dirt that we call the earth that we live on and the sun that we orbit and all of the universe and the galaxies, 
but he also owns the people who live within his creation. Psalm 24 and verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those that dwell therein. Now let me just say to you, you are owned by God. He is your master. He is your proprietor. He is your owner. And this is doubly true if you've met Jesus as your Savior because the Bible says, don't you know that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price, with the blood of Jesus. He owns all of creation. He also owns all of humanity. And just for fun, I thought it would be uh, wise to also acknowledge that he owns all of, cre- all of uh, the animal kingdom, right? Listen to what the Bible says in Psalm 50 and verse number 10. For all the animals of the forest are mine, God speaking, all the animals of the forest are mine, and I own the cattle on a thousand hills. You've heard that before. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't just own the cattle on the hills and the hills beneath them. He owns uh, all, the, all the creatures in the world. By right of creation and by right of redemption, he owns the, the, the creation, he owns the people, he owns the animal kingdom. Now there's another thing that he owns that we need to be honest about this morning, and that is the money and the wealth in the world. Listen to Haggai chapter 2 and verse 8. God says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. So God owns creation, God owns people, God owns animals, God owns worldly wealth. It is everything that exists in creation belongs to God. Pop quiz, how much of everything does God own? He owns all of it, right? And here's the beauty of what Jesus is teaching us in Luke 16. It is that God has taken all of his possessions and he has made us stewards over those possessions. That's an astounding reality when you think about it. Because a steward, by definition, is one who is trusted by the owner. Randy Alcorn, in his book, Managing God's Stuff, I believe is the title of it, or Managing God's Money, maybe. Randy Alcorn writes these words, that a steward is a person who the owner entrusts with his assets. I want to say to you that God trusts us. He has entrusted everything to us. So my question is, are we being trustworthy? Are we, are we being trustworthy with the trust that God has placed within us? Well, let's look at the parable in Luke chapter number 16, verse number 1. Jesus' parable here begins like so many of his parables when he says, There was a certain rich man. Often Jesus used the rich man or the householder or the master of the house in his parables Uh, referring in his parables to God, the owner of all things. He says there was a certain rich man uh, which had a steward. This steward was accused of being unfaithful with his goods. What had been entrusted to him, he had proven to be untrustworthy with. He was taking from it. He was wasting it, squandering it, verse number one says. And somebody told him, somebody reported him. The owner got word of this. Your steward is being wasteful with what you've entrusted to him. So verse 2 says he called him, called him in, fired him, 
I've heard that you've been untrustworthy. You've been unfaithful with what I've entrusted to you. So you're fired. Gather up your papers. Bring in the books. I want to take an accounting of your stewardship. You can no longer be the steward. Now, this steward, this is all that he had done. He, he uh, was not, uh, you know, he had soft hands. He, he wasn't a working man. He, he said, oh no, what am I going to do? I can't dig. Now, I don't know if this meant he was too old to dig. He was too lazy to dig. He was not able to dig. I don't know, but he wasn't digging, all right? I mean, whatever he was going to do, it wasn't going to involve a, shug, a shovel. He wasn't going to go out and do manual labor by any means. He said, I, I can't dig. And I'm ashamed to beg. I, I, I don't want to sit out. I don't want to get a piece of cardboard and stand at a traffic light, right? I, I'm ashamed to beg. What am I going to do? And so he thinks about it. He, he, he considers his options, and he comes up with a plan. Verse number four, I'm resolved what to do. Here, here's, here's my plan. He calls in the debtors. He begins to call in these that owe his master money, all of them, it says. Verse 5, he called in every one of his Lord's debtors. And he began to ask them, how much do you owe? He said to the first one, how much do you owe my Lord? He said, I owe him a hundred measures of oil. And the, and the uh, steward says, it's your lucky day. <laughs> Don't pay him a hundred, pay him 50 and write it paid in full. So this debtor's like, woohoo, that's a great deal. I'll take that deal. And he pays it off, 50 cents on the dollar. He calls in the next one. How much do you owe, my Lord? He says, I owe him a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and cut it down to 80. Now, why did he cut one to half and one to two thirds? Well, he's not a very honest steward, remember? So he's not being fair. Even in his unfairness, he's not being fair to everybody. But he cuts this guy's debt down to 80. And he's thrilled with that. And he pays that info. He does that with all of these debtors. Now, why does he do it? Well, look at verse five. Here's, he, says, he says, here's why I will do, or verse four, I will do this so that when I am fired or when I'm put out of the stewardship, these new friends of mine, these friends I've made in this unjust way, but these friends that I've made will receive me into their houses. I'll have somewhere to go because I'll have all these friends. So that's what he does. Verse number eight and the Lord commended the unjust steward. Now, let's be clear. If you're listening, shout amen. amen. Jesus did not commend the unjust steward. When it says the Lord, it doesn't mean the Lord Jesus. It means his Lord, his boss, the rich man, the master. That master um, was impressed with this steward's ingenuity. Now, he still fires him, of course. He's not trustworthy. He can't trust him. But he says to him, you've acted shrewdly. That was, that was a smart move. Dishonest, but a smart move that you made in order to provide housing for yourself. That's the end of the parable. Now, Jesus' application of the parable begins in the middle part of verse number 8 and goes throughout verse number 13. And his teaching out of this begins with a startling indictment of his people. Here it is. Write it down. What Jesus says about us out of this parable is that Christians are often careless with God's money. 
That's an indictment. Jesus gave the parable to highlight the the dishonesty, the carelessness, the wastefulness of this steward. And he's teaching us that sadly, this is too often the way that we as Christians handle God's money. Remember how much of what we own or what we say we own, what we have, belongs to God? How much of it? All of it. And what Jesus says in this parable is that there are, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are the children of the world. You see that in verse number 8? There are the, the children of the world. And then there are the children of light. Now, the children of the world are the lost people in the world, people who don't know the Lord. And, and the children of the light are those of us who have been brought into the light. We know Christ as our Savior. And in verse number 8, Jesus says, the children of the world are in their generation wiser than the children of the light. What? Really? Yeah. He says so often the people in the world are better stewards of the resources they possess than the children of the light are. They are wiser in their stewardship in their generation than the children of the light. You know, the the people of this world, they are... They are relentless. They work tirelessly. They train and and go to great effort and and have great safeguards in place. and, 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 And they work very skillfully in order to gain a temporary reward. They take what they have, the resources they have, and they work it and they invest it so that they can have what? Bigger profits? A a bigger house? A a, a nicer car? What? A a better vacation? They take those things and use them so that they can have earthly rewards. What Jesus says is, is that we should take our resources that are entrusted to us and use those to gain an eternal reward. But often the people in the world are working harder to get this reward than we are to get an, earth, uh, an eternal reward. If you understand, say amen. That's the point of the, of the parable. The children of the world are wiser than the children of the light. This steward had a motivation. His motivation was, I don't want to dig. And I don't want to beg. And when I get kicked out of the stewardship, I want to be sure that I've got some places to go. And so he worked skillfully, according to his master, in order to have that place to go. What Jesus says is that Christians should be at least this wise with our use of wealth. We should use our wealth to gain an eternal reward. So so let's talk about that for a minute. How do we do that? How, How can we be faithful stewards with everything that God entrusts to us? Write this down. Jesus teaches us here that the first thing that we need to do, and it really has nothing to do with what we spend, it has to do with where we're focused. So the first thing Jesus says is that we should live now with eternity in view. If I want to be a good steward, I've got to change my perspective. And so I need to live every day now looking toward eternity. Um, in, In verse number two, the master said to this steward, your stewardship is over. You're, you've, you've reached your final day as my steward. Give an account. 
And here's what Jesus is teaching us. Listen carefully. That we should live every day with that day in view. That the day will come for every single one of us when our stewardship of anything in this life is going to come to an end. We will put the pencil down. We will lay aside the ledger. We will lay aside everything that has ever passed through our hands or that we possess. And we will in that moment stand before our God and give an account of our stewardship. Live every day with that day in view. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment, the accounting. We will give an account of our stewardship. Let me turn you back, turn back just two pages. Look at Luke chapter 12. Jesus is teaching another parable in Luke chapter 12, also related to stewardship. Listen to what he says in Luke 12 and verse 42. The Lord said, who then is a faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household and give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant who when his Lord comes, he shall find him so doing. Blessed is that steward who, when the Lord returns, finds him being a faithful steward. Look at verse number 45. But he says, if that servant shall say in his heart, my Lord delays his coming. He's not going to come today. Probably not going to come tomorrow. Certainly even not next week or next month or probably next year. And so I'll just begin to live it up. Verse number 45. He beats the men servants and the maidens and he eats and drinks and gets drunk. Verse 46, then the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he's not looking for him, in an hour when he's not aware. And see, what Jesus is teaching us is this, is that if I'm going to be a good steward, steward, I need to live every single day, steward every single day, like today is my last day. Like the Lord is coming today, or I'm going to stand before him today. Change your perspective. And that means when I change that perspective, then I need to be faithful with the least and with the much. It's a value proposition. So he says in verse number 10, back in chapter number 16 and verse number 10, he says, if you will be faithful in the least, then you'll also be faithful in the must, in the much, uh, in much. If you are, <coughs> excuse me, faithful in the un, what is unjust, then you will be faithful in, in uh, the uh, just. Uh, verse number 11 uh, if you've been faithful in unrighteous mammon, uh, or haven't been faithful in unrighteous mammon, then who's going to commit to you true riches? He says that we should see money as the least, the, the least important thing to us. We're just managing it. I'm not living for it. I don't live for, for, for money. We need to manage money for what we do live for. So that if we're faithful in this, considering money the least, then we will be faithful in the things that matter the most. So how can we be good stewards? Number one, we need to live now with eternity in view. Number two, we need to invest faithfully in winning souls for eternity. If we want to be good stewards, we must invest faithfully in winning souls for eternity. Look at chapter 16 and verse number 9. Jesus says, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. Use worldly wealth. So that when you die, when you fail, when your stewardship is over, they, those friends that you've made, will receive you into everlasting habitations. That's it. He's saying don't go to heaven alone. 
But use what you're entrusted with to reach people for Christ so that your investment in those relationships will result in their knowing Christ and going to heaven. And when you die, they will receive you into heaven and welcome you, greeting you with gratitude for your investment. The same way that this earthly unjust steward did what he did so that he would have a home to go to, he would have friends. Jesus said, do something greater with what really matters Use this wealth in order to make sure that you have friends in heaven. So we should invest faithfully in winning souls for eternity. Now I want to end my time together today by answering the question, well, how do we do this? What does it look like for me to understand that everything in this world belongs to God, my life belongs to God, everything that I possess belongs to God, every dollar in my checking account belongs to God, my calendar, all my days belong to God, my kids, my grandkids, my spouse belongs to God, everything in my life belongs to him. When it comes to getting a grip on stewardship of money, how can I invest faithfully in winning souls for eternity? Let me suggest four things quickly and then we'll be dismissed. All right. Number one, that if I'm going to invest faithfully to win souls for eternity, we should work hard as an act of worship. Now, I want to talk about this for just a minute. It's not particularly in this text, although it is clearly a biblical principle. But I want you to understand that if we are going to be good stewards, we need to shift the way that we think about work, about worship, and about winning souls. We shift the way that we think about work, worship, and winning souls. Let me tell you the attitude of poor stewardship. The attitude of poor stewardship says, I work for personal gain. And I might invest some of what I gain into the kingdom. That's poor stewardship. What I do, I do for me. And once I've done for me what I want to do for me, then if I can invest that in others or in eternity, the work of the gospel, then I'll do that. Poor stewardship mentality. The right stewardship mentality is I work as worship. My work is my my worship to the Lord. I don't serve man. I serve the Lord Christ, Paul writes in one place. I don't serve with eye service just to please my boss, but I serve Christ. I work as worship. And as I work as an act of worship, I do so so that I can invest in eternity. So my work allows me to have what I need. It does provide what I need, but it also then allows me to invest in eternity. You should work as an act of worship. Now, I just want to say something uh, that I I am absolutely burdened about, and and, uh, it concerns me greatly for our nation. And that is that I'm concerned about the disappearing work ethic uh, in America. I'm concerned about it. The, statis- the statistics are, um, are really off the charts. Um, last report I saw just a couple of days ago, there were over 10 million job openings in the United States. 10 million. And well over half of the small businesses in America are reporting that they have job openings they cannot fill. Because people simply don't want to work. I have to tell you, some weeks ago, I was, I was at a traffic light in town. 
And I, listen, people have various needs and do what they have to do, but there was a guy standing there, looked as healthy as me, standing there holding a sign, asking for money. And what struck me is that he was standing in an intersection which was surrounded by businesses, fast food restaurants, gas stations, convenience stores, retail stores, surrounded. And every single store had a sign that said, help wanted. We'll pay off your iPhone, give you 500 bucks if you'll just apply. And so I went up to the guy, not to give him money, but I said to him, dude, I got to ask. <laughs> I literally got out of my car, walked up to him. Dude, I got to ask. I mean, I understand that you need some help, but every store around you is looking for help. Well, he had a couple of reasons why that wasn't going to work out for him. Here's what I'm concerned about, that people don't value work anymore. It's a problem. And I should remind you that the Bible says, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10, are you ready for this? Are you sitting down? You're sitting down, I can see you. Are you sitting down at home? Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse number 10, if a man is unwilling to work, he shouldn't eat. If a man is unwilling to work, he shouldn't eat. And you said, Pastor, you said we should choose generosity. What about generosity? What about benevolence? Listen, benevolence is for widows and orphans and those who are incapable of providing for themselves, but an able-bodied man ought to take a job and work a full day's work for a full day's pay, and we as believers ought to do it as an act of worship. The that is simply the stewardship of my life. It's the stewardship of my strength. It's the stewardship of my skills. It's the stewardship of my abilities. Work hard. Work to the Lord. Gather what you can and give as God enables you. A friend of mine wrote a wonderful book I highly recommend to you called Make All You Can and Give All You Can. <laughs> it's a wonderful book. Make all you can and give all you can. That's the first principle. Work hard as an act of worship. That's the way you can be a good steward investing in eternity. Number two, number two, ooh, I gotta hurry. Number two, save some, save some, and avoid unwise debt. If you want to be a good steward, save some and avoid unwise debt. Verse number one says this steward was squandering, wasting his Lord's goods. Sadly, Many of us do this. We squander what God provides to us. Sadly, many Christians live on 120% of their income. It's true. We spend more than we make. And so we need to learn the discipline of working hard, but not living in such a way that our consumer debt drains everything that our work produces and forbids us the ability to save or the ability to give. So be wise, avoid unwise debt, and save some dollars. Now listen, very often this happens in our lives because we haven't been taught better and we live in a world which offers us everything in the world uh, you know, for you can finance it. You can just go out and borrow it. I sometimes laugh. Tracy and I, you know, we'll be looking at something and it's sixty-two dollars, and it says or fourteen payments of eighty cents. You know, like, we could finance it, babe. 
Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not making fun. I've made so many of these mistakes early in my marriage. Tracy would testify, please don't ask her. But early in our marriage, I made so many of these mistakes because it's only X number of dollars a month and we can finance it. And, and pretty soon what that does is it begins to lock you down in a chain of debt and drain your ability to be a good steward. If you're going to be good, a good steward and choose generosity, you need to get to the place where you know how to say no to your wants and we know how to save and then invest. And, and if we haven't been taught better, let the church help you. In fact, this week, we have enlisted a, a, a number of people within our church who are wise financial folks. They're, they're CPAs and investment advisors and bankers and just wise mamas and daddies and, and, and husbands and wives, and they can help you. And so if we can help you, if, if you say, Pastor, I want help, but I don't really know how to do this, then call the church office and let us connect you with one of these counselors who would be happy to sit with you and talk through your situation and help you. They're available to you. We want to we wanna help facilitate that. How can I invest faithfully in winning souls, work hard as an act of worship, and then save some and avoid unwise debt? Number three, be an intentional investor and not a sporadic giver. Be an intentional investor, not a sporadic giver. Verse number nine says, I say to you, make to yourselves friends of the unrighteous wealth or worldly wealth or mammon of unrighteousness so that they will welcome you into heaven. That's not... Accidental, that's intentional. Take your wealth and use it to invest in eternity. And you say, well, pastor, how much should I invest? What does it look like to be an intentional investor? Well, remember the principle from last week in 2 Corinthians 9, you decide. You can give a little or you can give bountifully. You decide. But the Bible would teach us that there is a, a guide, a way, biblical principles that direct our giving. I would suggest to you the tithe, that the tithe is a biblical baseline. It's not a legalistic maximum, maximum. it's not a magic number, but it's the, it's the baseline where we begin as Christians, not as an act of law keeping, but as an act of worship, putting our Lord first. So I highly recommend to you the tithe. The tithe is the tenth. The book of Proverbs says it's the first fruits, it's off the top. And so that's what I invest in the Lord. I, can I tell you, I, I never, I never come to church thinking, well, I don't know what I'm going to give this week. I gave 20 bucks last week, maybe I give 25 this week. No, I know. I know what I'm going to give because, because I know what the tithe is. And that's where we begin. And then we go beyond that as God leads us and enables us. So I highly recommend to you the tithe. And Malachi promises us that that is a, an offering that God has promised to bless he says, I'll open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that you can't receive it. Give your first to God. By the way, you should never give God your leftovers, should you? Right? Like I'm going to earn my income and I'm going to spend it on everything I want. I've got to make my, my truck payment and my boat payment and my motorcycle payment and my, my cable payment and my whatever. <laughs> I'm just being silly now. but I've got to do all these things for all my goodies. And then i got a little left. So here, Lord, here's, I'm going to give you some leftovers. Should you do that? Or should God be first? Does, does his work deserve to come in front of everything else? Bring the first fruits, the Bible says. And so I would recommend to you that Christ cares for his bride and we should invest in his church. 
And then lastly, lastly, if you want to be a faithful steward, then remain faithful until the end. Remain faithful until the end. This is verses 10 through 12 where he talks about being faithful in the least so that you'll be faithful in the most and faithful in unrighteous mammon so you'll be faithful with true riches. That, that we need to be faithful all the way to the end. Can I challenge some of you? I love you, but I just want to challenge you. I, I, I'm saying this not because I know it. I'm certain, though, that it's true. That some of you used to be faithful in, in your giving. You were good stewards, and you were, you were putting the Lord first. And then things happened, and maybe you got distracted. Or, and somehow, the value of investing in souls has diminished till it's now somewhere way down on your list. You, what you began doing well, you're not being faithful in any longer. Let me challenge you to be faithful. Be faithful all the way to the end. And as we grow in this discipline of stewardship, then, then this rhythm of working as worship, I work for the Lord, that produces an income. From this, this income that God entrusts to me, I'm going to invest in his kingdom. I'm going to put him first. I'm going to put some aside. Proverbs 6, go to the ant. Watch what the ant does in the summer, laying in store for the winter. I'm going to put some to the side. I'm not going to consume it all. I'm going to invest. I'm going to consume. I'm going to enjoy it. First Timothy, Paul said to those who are rich in this world, know this, God gives you everything to enjoy. So you should enjoy the fruits of your labor. But this is the rhythm. Are you with me? This is the rhythm of my stewardship. I work as worship. I receive and give. I save. I enjoy. I work, I give, I save, I enjoy. I work, I give, I save, I enjoy. That's the rhythm of stewardship. And, and over our lifetime, employment changes and economies go up and down and situations are different. And so the amount I'm giving or the amount I'm saving or the amount I'm enjoying may change throughout my life, but the rhythm stays the same. I work as worship. God is first. I save some and I enjoy some. That's the rhythm of worship. And so if you want to be a good steward, Jesus would say, don't be like the unjust steward, but rather use everything that God entrusts to you for his glory in eternity and along the way, worship him and enjoy his goodness. And you'll be a faithful steward. The last thing I want to say to you is that if you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you need to hear me say that this is where it begins. The stewardship of your life begins with giving your life to Christ. That Christ died for your sins on the cross and he rose from the dead to be your Savior and your Lord. And there's no entrance into heaven without Christ, without personal saving faith in Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins and turning to him. If you've never done that, no matter where you are, at Merriman or online or in this room, I want to say to you, give your life to Christ and then become his faithful steward.